Podcastle, episode 361, for April 28th, 2015. Traveller Take Me, by Kate Hartfield, rated PG. Welcome to Podcastle. I'm Graham Dunlop, your host and co-editor. A quick administrative note before we begin... We shall reopen for submissions again on May the 1st. So get ready to send all those stories you've been holding on to. We're ready to read them. Today's story touches on gold prospecting, and while it doesn't focus on that, it does lend the story a familiar flavour to me. Tramping about the countryside, sleeping rough, chasing a doubtful gold claim. I'm sure you've all heard stories about gold rushes, particularly if you're from the North Americas. Here in Australia, we had them too. They began in New South Wales in 1851, then gradually spread to the other states, and they had a profound effect on us. Between 1851 and 1871, our population more than tripled, going from 430,000 to 1.7 million. This influx of free emigrants changed the nature of our country from a collection of convict colonies into a series of progressive cities. The emigrants brought new skills and professions that helped the economy grow. Those in the goldfields were nicknamed diggers, and the mateship that evolved between the diggers, combined with their stubborn streak of resistance to authority, contributed to our national identity. And of course, my colonial cousins in Canada experienced similar rushes, possibly the most famous of which was the Klondike Gold Rush between 1896 and 1899. And whilst this story isn't set in the Yukon, it's set not too far away, and not too long after, near a town with the unlikely name of Flin Flon. Podcastle is very proud to present Traveller Take Me by Kate Hartfield first published in the summer 2014 issue of On Spec. Kate Hartfield is a journalist and fiction writer from Manitoba who now lives in Ottawa, Canada. Her stories have appeared recently in places such as Strange Horizons, Daily Science Fiction, Crossed Genres and Lackingtons. She's on Twitter as at Kate Hartfield and her website is hartfieldfiction.com. The story's read to you by a very familiar voice around here, Mr. Wilson Fowley. Wilson's been reading stories out loud since the age of four and credits any talent he has in this area to his parents, who are both excellent at reading aloud. He's been narrating stories for more people than his own family since late 2008, when he answered a call for readers on the Podcastle forum from Podcastle's then-editor, Rachel Swirsky. Yeah pretty similar to how I started out. Since then, he's gone on to become Podcastle's most prolific narrator, reading or appearing in nearly 30 episodes. He's also narrated for many other podcasts, including, of course, Podcastle's sister casts, Escape Pod and Pseudopod, as well as Starship Sofa, Protecting Project Pulp, Crime City Central, Tales to Terrify, Beam Me Up, Cast Macabre, Dune Steve Audio Fiction Magazine, and The Journey Into Podcast. He fits in all this narrating between his day job as a web developer for a tech company in the Greater Vancouver area in Canada, and being the director of a community show chorus called 
the Maple Leaf Singers. He's still hoping to find a paying gig narrating stories, or maybe, since he doesn't really have the time to go looking for it, that one will find him. Links will be in the show notes, folks. But now, gather your prospecting gear, your travelling companions, and your courage, and enjoy this story. Traveller Take Me by Kate Hartfield The Canadian National Railway wants to know what to call the copper town tucked into the dogleg on the border between Manitoba and Saskatchewan. The radio operator says they're threatening to call it Flinflon, if they don't hear any different from us. We all laugh ourselves giddy at that, all of us in the Hudson Bay Mining and Smelting Company Limited. Go ahead, we say, call it Flinflon. Bad luck to call it anything else. It's the only name the place has had for its fifteen years now, and if that's not the judgment of history in these uncertain times, I don't know what is. All of us in the mine company know the story of how Tom Crichton named the place for a character in a dime novel back in 1914. Tom himself tells it to anyone who'll half listen, but he never tells the story of how he found the novel in the first place, and what that book did once he started to read it. He never says where the book is now. I hope it's fallen apart, battered into mush by the rain and snow. Unreadable. It was the last days of October, and too cold to be paddling north on a fool's errand. But Tom had that twinkle in his eye that men would follow anywhere if they had just a little bit of greed in them. He'd heard tell of some gold from one of his Cree pals. In those days there were claims fluttering from every tree, and we were all desperate to find something new, something first. So there we were, the four of us, in two canoes, with little hard pinpricks of snow dusting our toques and coats. Tom never wore a toque, just the same floppy hat year-round. He never seemed to feel the cold, for all that he was thin as a boy and his clothes flapped around him. He was made to live in the bush. If we complained about the wind and the snow, Tom would just laugh and say, Well, but aren't you pleased the mosquitoes are gone? Kate Rice was the same, in the life for something other than gold. Not Dick Woozy, her partner. He wanted the gold and nothing else. People said they were lovers, but I'd been in their cabin. It had a rope nailed down the precise middle. She was an educated woman, a schoolmarm, before she took to prospecting for God knows what reason. Before she took up with Woozy, she'd been living alone in a tar-paper shack with no company for miles but a canary in a cage she'd brought all the way from Ontario. I didn't know her then. And I never saw any birdcage in her cabin with Woozy. Maybe it died, or maybe it had never existed. People make up all kinds of stories about each other in the wild. We found the book at Frog Portage. There's a log cabin there with bunks a ramshackle place that might well go back to the days of Frobisher, for all I know, but I bet it's still standing. It had plenty of room for the four of us to spend a warm, dry night before hauling our gear over to the Churchill River. The book lay on a lower bunk, patiently waiting, with a note stuck inside the cover. Traveler, take me and leave another. We were solitary creatures, we prospectors, but we survived by sharing what we had. If I came snowshoeing up to an old-timer's cabin in the dead of night, well, as crotchety as he might be, he'd fry me a sausage. We did the same with books. Once one of us had read one, we'd pass it along. It didn't matter whether it was the Bible or Sherlock Holmes. 
we'd read whatever we could get our hands on. So we fell on this novel like a pack of wolves. It was green cloth, dirty and worn, with the title in gold. The Sunless City by J. E. Preston Muddock. Read it out loud, Tom, said Kate. She was huddled up to her neck into her patched sleeping bag, bought third hand in Winnipeg years before. She swore that bag had been to the North Pole with a member of the Perry expedition. She always kept her arms out of the bag, though, no matter how cold it got, and her rifle close to hand. I don't know whether she was protecting herself from the men in the room with her or the wolves outside, and maybe she didn't know either. Maybe it was just habit. Looks like a previous owner wrote his name on the flyleaf, Tom said, peering at it. Joshua Hartnell, Oxford, 1909. Well, thank you, Joshua Hartnell, said Kate. Now read, please. Oh, I hope it's a good book. I doubt it, said Woozy. He wouldn't have left it otherwise. Not everyone is as miserly as you, Cockney, said Tom mildly. Woozy hated to be called Cockney, but we did it anyway. Woozy fancied himself a gentleman, but he was far beneath Kate, if you ask me. He was married already, for one thing. His wife had taken one look at Halifax Harbor and boarded the next ship back to Liverpool, taking their baby son back with her. Woozy'd never seen his boy since. A funny trade to make for the hope of gold. But then Woozy was a funny sort. Chapter 1, read Tom, The Lake of Mystery In one of the loneliest and most inaccessible parts of the Rocky Mountains of America is situated a strange lake or tarn. A few paragraphs later, we met the hero of the tale. Josiah Flintabaddy Flonaton, Esquire, or, as he was more familiarly known amongst his fellows, Flinflon, was a gentleman conspicuous for two things, the smallness of his stature and the largeness of his perception. Tom finished chapter one that night before we went to sleep, just as Flinflon was preparing to construct a submersible vessel for the purposes of exploring the strange lake, which seemed to be bottomless. If I perish, I shall perish nobly, Flinflon declared, and we all liked him. He was one of us. That night, Woozy woke up screaming. He'll be fine come morning, Kate said, after we'd made him a cup of tea and he'd fallen back into a fitful sleep. He often has bad dreams. He was over in South Africa with the 18th Hussars. Tom and I looked at each other just for a split second in the candlelight. Men glanced at each other, or glanced away from each other, in just that way whenever war was mentioned in those years. It was a look that meant, I have my reasons and I'm not saying anything about yours. It was October 1914, and the first contingent of Canadians had just landed in Europe. The war seemed very far away, and we told each other it would all be over by Christmas. Hardly worth the bother of signing up and shipping over. Still, men looked at each other, and then quickly looked away. We tucked the note into my moldy copy of The Wolves of New York, which we'd all read, and left it on the table. Tom put the sunless city into his pack, and we were off. How sure are you of these reports of gold, Tom? I asked quietly, as we made ready to push the canoes into the Churchill River. He shrugged. As sure as I ever am. Sometimes it pans out, and sometimes it doesn't. Only one way to know. Tell you what, though, I'm not excited about gold any more. The real money's in copper with this war on. Well, that's as may be, but we've got ourselves a gold tip, and no copper tip. 
Maybe it's hindsight telling me he gave a little secret smile at that. Maybe not. It was a few months later that he registered his claim to the copper ore body at the place he would call Flinflon. It was warmer that day, and we made good time. We sang as we went, our voices ringing across the empty water out into the bush. Come take a trip in my airship, come take a sail among the stars, come have a ride around Venus, come have a spin around Mars. Then Kate and Tom sang Bicycle Built for Two, alternating the verses across the water between the two canoes. They had sweet voices, and old Woozy and I were happy to listen and paddle in time. We made camp that night on a slope of grey bedrock that rose gently up out of the water like a beach of stone. I lit a fire in a little hollow in the rock, and we all crawled into our bags around it and smoked while Tom read chapters two and three. Then I couldn't sleep, and neither could Kate. I stared up at the stars. She was obsessed with the aurora borealis, and she watched a green show for a time through the opera glasses she took with her everywhere. Woozy muttered, and Tom snored. Eventually, Kate fell asleep too, and I was left there alone with the stars. I got up and walked up the slope toward the dark hump of the trees to relieve myself, and that's when I saw him. He was leaning against a tree. I knew he was a ghost right away because there was a great gaping hole in his ribs with blood dripping down to the ground, and it didn't seem to be bothering him at all. He was lit up well enough in the moonlight and the starlight. I ran back toward the others and sat with my back to the fire and my face toward the tree line. I held my water all night until the gray dawn came, and then when it did, I walked over to piss into the water. I didn't want to go near the trees. The next night we all saw him. We were camped on an island covered with trees. There was no escaping their shadows. And after Tom had read most of chapter four, out came the ghost. Kate leaped to her feet and pointed her rifle. The ghost stretched out his arms, toward us we thought at first. But then we saw him embrace someone invisible to us. He seemed to lift someone up and spin like a returning soldier on a train platform. He seemed happy. You might imagine that made him less frightening to us, but it didn't. His happiness seemed alien, disorienting, like a scene glimpsed through a pinhole or a stereoscope. I wriggled my bag over closer to Kate, who was still clutching her rifle. She stared into the tree shadows, just as I had on my own the night before. Before I knew Kate Rice, I would have said a girl couldn't be pretty with her hair chopped short under a man's cap, with a sleeping bag pulled up to her collarbone and a ratty gray sweater under that. "'It doesn't seem to mean us any harm,' I said. "'No,' she agreed. "'He's a soldier, isn't he?' "'British by his uniform,' said Woozy from across the fire. "'And not yet thirty, I'd say.' "'The right age to have been at Oxford in 1909,' Tom said. We all turned to look at him. It seemed so obvious once he said it. "'Joshua Hartnell,' I whispered. "'Who else?' Tom lit his pipe. "'You say he appeared last night after we'd gone to sleep, after we'd read from his book. We did the same tonight. I reckon he hears us. It's familiar to him. I wonder how that book ended up here.' Long after the ghost had faded, we fell asleep, and woke up after dawn cold and ornery. The heavy sky matched our mood as we struck camp and got back on our way. 
That day we didn't sing. When we made camp for the evening, Tom left the sunless city in his pack. We sat in silence, burning our tongues on tea out of tin mugs and watching the shadows. He seemed content, Kate said after a while. Isn't that strange? I don't know that I've been content, not once in my whole life. Your old life hasn't been very long, said Woozy. Long enough. Do you think he wants to hear us read it? The book, I mean. Maybe he has unfinished business. I shook my head. I don't think ghosts really want anything. Aren't they just after-images, echoes? I don't think they have desires. Like me, said Tom. I don't have desires. Does that make me content, Kate? Kate howled with laughter. It made my skin tingle. It could have been heard for miles, that laugh, if anything were listening. Tom Crichton, she said. At the merest rumor of a shiny rock, you're off in your canoe with a pan in your hand. And you say you have no desires? He spread his hands wide. I'm an ascetic, my dear. Look at me. My pan might as well be my begging bowl. Every wanderer needs an excuse to wander, that's all. She snorted. You're not an ascetic. You're just a prospector who hasn't struck it big yet, like all the rest of us. All right, he said. You think the ghost is content, or does he want us to summon him up? Is he stalking the earth, looking for revenge or absolution? Cursed or blessed? She shrugged. I don't know. Well, I think we need more information. He stood and walked over to his pack. Now, Woozy piped up. Don't read it, Tom. Are you afraid of ghosts, Cockney? I asked. It wasn't my kindest moment, I'll admit. You idiots, Woozy said. You great ruddy idiots. Didn't you see his uniform? His wound? He's newly killed in France, I'll wager. Dead for king and country. And you lot treat him like he's a pal again. Tom shrugged and started to read. Flinflon, in his submersible, discovered a tunnel that seemed to be carved out of jewels. Exploring further, he came upon a society of strange beings who valued tin highly and counted gold as junk. Tom kept reading, late into the night. After a while, when our ghost had failed to appear, he stopped. It was colder than a witch's tit, so Kate warmed up some rocks in the embers and wrapped them in canvas for us to tuck into the bottoms of our bags. We lay down, but none of us closed our eyes. Then the ghost came. Again his arms were outstretched, but this time he bent low and seemed to gather something to him again and again, and then he was rolling around in the pine needles, silently laughing. Children, said Kate finally, he's playing with his children. Her expression was hard. You're not afraid of him now, I said, are you? She shook her head. No, not really, not in the sense you mean. Tell me, didn't you ever want to get married? The question came like a shot. I've never thought much about it, I said. The women around here aren't what you'd bring home to mother, are they? What about you, Kate? I shot a glance at Woozy, who was hunched over his knees, Took pulled low over his brows, watching the ghost's strange movements. Well, you're right. I'm not the kind you'd bring home to mother. That's not what I meant, I said, feeling the chill of the night air against my cheeks. I know. I did have a fiancé once, or nearly, she said. He wanted to marry me, anyway. I kept putting him off. And then he died. And then I was free to come out here, she finished breezily, as if shaking off her melancholy by force of will. We watched him for a while longer. 
Then the ghost turned his back to us and walked into the deeper forest, seeming to fade as he went. I called, Joshua! Joshua Hartnell? He paused and turned and seemed to look straight at me for a fraction of a second before he was gone. We kept at it, paddling by day, reading the dime novel every night, and then watching the shade of Joshua Hartnell relive the love none of us had and none of us knew how to get. He never answered our attempts at conversation, but Tom watched him with eager fascination. Whenever one of us would ask Tom to stop reading, to give us a night off, he'd poke fun at us or ignore us. We never pushed back very hard. We all wanted Tom to think well of us. He was like a scientist watching an experiment bubble over. We started singing again in the canoes, by the banks of the Saskatchewan, hard times come again no more. But our voices seemed weak in that wilderness, and we had trouble keeping in key with each other. Finally, in mid-November, we reached the place where Crichton had heard there was gold. We did scrape up a few flakes after days of trying, but that was it, a dead end. We had all been disappointed enough times not to be too bothered. Dead ends were our stock in trade. There was enough, always just enough, to keep us going, to put flesh on our bones and breath in our lungs, to give us strength enough to keep trudging on after the big prize. That last night before we turned back, Tom read from the book as he always did. Hartnell's ghost flitted in the shadows, sometimes seeming to listen, sometimes smiling at people only he could see. Flynn alarmed by the matriarchy he found in the world in the deep, began an escape attempt, taking with him a princess as a kind of captive or trophy. First, Flynn seduced her. This bit struck me as unlikely. She felt his power, Tom read. She felt that she was being drawn nearer and nearer to bondage, and she struggled hard to free herself. But she was simply helpless. She could not shut him out from her sight. She could not obliterate him from her memory. Then Flynn convinced her to come to the surface. Princess Yobmot uttered no complaint, Tom read, but it was evident she looked upon the expedition with grave misgivings. The only motive she had for starting upon such a dangerous journey was her love for Flynn, as she was not even supported, as was he, by any enthusiasm for scientific exploration. But she confessed herself willing to live or die with him. And so, when everything was ready, and when the apparatus for breathing had been adjusted, and the electric lamps set in motion, he turned his back toward Esnesnan and set his face upward. And? asked Woozy, because Tom had stopped. And nothing, Tom said, slamming the book shut with a grin. The last few pages are torn out. Can you believe the rotten luck? What? Kate exclaimed. How will we know what happened to the princess? Did they get out? Tom shrugged. He looked over at the ghost, who seemed to be leading something, a pony, maybe, or a wagon. Hey, Hartnell, what happened to the last pages, eh? But if the ghost heard, he chose to ignore us. He had eyes only for the ones he loved. I don't know what Tom did with the book. He was gone when we woke the next morning and came striding into camp as we were finishing our bannock. He'd taken a long walk, he said, and left the book near a deer trail for another traveler to find. The three of us were pensive as we started the return trip that cold morning. Not Tom. He seemed his usual self, his slight smile unruffled, his hat perched at the same angle it was every day of his life. 
I tried to get him to talk about it when we stopped for lunch, while Kate and Woozy were off stretching their legs. I think sometimes we were jealous of that ghost, I said to Tom, chuckling as though I were joking. The three of us, not you, though. He looked very grave. No, I was never jealous of him. Barely a man and his life's blood blown out of him in France for no reason at all. Leaving a young family, too, it seems. My jealousy, if that's what it was, seemed petty and blinkered. It was easy to forget sometimes that the civilized world even existed. It all seemed like a faraway story, wars and weddings and politics. Real life was traps to check and fish to clean, and cold, narrow beds that smelled of only ourselves. Jealous isn't what I meant, I said. I guess he just reminded us that there are other ways we could be living our lives. He turned his cold gray eyes on me. Not me, he said. I've always liked Tom Crichton. He isn't a particularly good man or a bad man. Just a man, but completely a man, sufficient unto himself. Maybe the only such man I've ever met. At that moment, strange to say, I felt a mixture of pity and revulsion for him. The rest of us, at least, had the decency to know there was something wrong with us. I never saw the ghost of Joshua Hartnell again. But as we approached Frog Portage again from the other side on a terrible windy day, we stopped and held our dripping paddles out of the water to listen. We heard faintly, as though at a great distance, a man and a woman singing. No one to watch while we're kissing, no one to see while we spoon. Come take a trip in my airship and we'll visit the man in the moon. Author's Note Kate Hartfield writes, Tom Crichton, Kate Rice, and Dick Woozy were prospectors who lived in the Flin Flon area in the early 20th century. Crichton did name Flin Flon after Puddock's novel. More information about their lives can be found in Helen Duncan's book, Kate Rice, Prospector. I've taken some poetic license with their characters and relationships, and while Crichton did know Rice and Woozy, no one's ever suggested they were with him when he found the novel, or that they encountered a ghost. And welcome back. Feedback this week is for How You Work, I'm sure I've mangled that, I'm sorry, by Heather Rose Jones. It was read by our own submissions queen, Sarah Goldman, and was a podcastle original. This was the third of our Artemis Rising stories. Most folks enjoyed the story, and there was some quite lively discussion about a few of the themes raised. Devoted135 said, I really enjoyed this story's emulation of the traditional fairy tale structure and storyline. Mixed in with the wit and humour, this was a winner in my book. Albion Moonlight said, Prankster stroke trick stories are always fun. Neat to see people using their wits instead of their swords. I did feel a little bad for the prince in so much as he didn't really do anything wrong. Generally in these stories, the antagonist has done something to show the reader that she or he is a bad guy who will deserve his comeuppance. Not so much here. And Father Beast said, I enjoyed this. I'm pretty sure that I've heard both tricks used in fairy tales before, but they're still entertaining. And I agree with the host that Ellen messed up when she fell into thinking that she could bargain with her partner's affections 
even though she was tired, and that the story addressed this error was quite welcome. And then Father Beast came back to say, And before anyone else says it, I can hear the chorus of, Ew, with your sister? What is this, Game of Thrones? Did you know that you too can come and offer your thoughts on the story? Step right up to forum.escapeartists.net and tell us. Don't feel like you have to say anything profound or insightful. We just like discussing stuff. That was our show for this week. On behalf of everyone here at Podcastle, our wonderful slushers, Arun Jiwa and Sarah Goldman, our audio engineer, Peter Wood, our fantastic forum moderators, Talia and Aussie Cat, your editors, Rachel K. Jones and myself, thanks for stopping by and listening to this week's story. We'll be back next week with another. Until then, this is Graham Dunlop reminding you that if you pick up a strange book, make sure all the pages are intact. Hi, this is Tina Connolly from Toasted Cake, reminding you that podcast nominations are now open for the 10th Annual Parsec Awards. Do you have a favorite podcast? What about a favorite episode from last year? A story that really stuck with you? Or a roundtable that was particularly insightful? Well, you can bring a little joy into our humdrum lives by nominating your favorites from 2014. You have until May 31st, and the winners will be announced at DragonCon this September in Atlanta. Find all the details at ParsecAwards.com. Podcastle is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it, but don't change it or sell it. Our theme music is by Shiva in Exile. You can find them at magnatune.com. And if you like science fiction or horror, be sure to visit our sister podcasts, Escape Pod and Pseudopod. And if you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend, or post to your blog about it, or consider donating via the PayPal link on our site. Dick Cavett said, In the main, ghosts are said to be forlorn and generally miserable, if not downright depressed. The jolly ghost is rare. <laughs>